Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are glad you're here for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. We got lots to talk about. We've got good, bad, and crazy, but honestly, the bad and the crazy were pretty much interchangeable. They belong in either category, but we had to make decisions, and that's what we do. We make decisions here, and so we've got a good, a bad, and a crazy, and uh, we know uh, some of our listeners uh, are waking up to devastation in the South. Last I saw, Jim, uh, 19 dead across several states, uh, nearly a million without power, and it's headed uh, towards the East Coast now. We might see some rough weather here uh, in the D.C. area a little bit later today. And at a time when uh, nerves are frayed enough, losing power and, of course, losing life is uh, the last thing we need right now. So hopefully uh, the weather is not as severe the rest of the way here. And uh, thoughts and prayers certainly go out to everyone who's already been affected by this. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, there was this kind of tinkling of wind chimes. Uh, although some people might interpret that as a sign that the wind blows through my mind, not encountering very much. Uh, but the gist being that like natural disasters are not going to take a hiatus because we're all dealing with the coronavirus. We're still going to be dealing with fires. We're still going to be dealing with earthquakes, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes, you know, all the things that bedevil us as, as a natural disaster are still going to continue at a time when we all want to try to stay six feet away from each other. So that's, and my guess is that in this situation, first responders are just going to have to, you know, put on the mask and hope for the best and save people because that's who they are and that's what they do. And they will assume a greater risk to themselves, adding to their already copious amounts of heroism. Um, the only other thing, the, the, I do remember though, there was apparently a, another tornado a couple of weeks ago where it tore through a shopping mall Thankfully, I understand there were no serious injuries or deaths, and the local officials were like, well, because everybody was staying at home, uh, it did not hit this area. So maybe we'll look out here and there, but uh, living with the virus and then living with the usual series of natural disasters is going to be a major complication in our lives as 2020 progresses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're supposedly going to have an above average hurricane season, although those projections don't always turn out to be accurate, but we'll see. Uh, that doesn't uh, officially kick in until June 1st with hurricane season. But uh, let's talk about our good martini. And uh, Jim, we're getting kind of worried about this last week, but we're glad to see that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is not only out of ICU, he's now home from the hospital. Uh, he's uh, still taking it easy to some extent while he uh, still obviously has to recover from the coronavirus. But things were looking kind of dicey when he had to head to the ICU. From what we know, he was never actually put on a ventilator. But uh, things were definitely, I don't know if touch and go is the right word, but in his statement yesterday, Boris Johnson uh, not only uh, thanked uh, all the doctors and the nurses, he actually mentioned some by name and two in particular who were literally by his bedside for about 48 hours straight during the most tense time of uh, his hospitalization. So here's a little bit of what he said. I want to thank the many nurses, men, and women whose care has been so astonishing. I'm going to forget some names, so please forgive me, but I want to thank uh, Poling and Shannon and Emily and Angel and Connie and Becky and Rachel and Nikki and Anne. And I hope they won't mind if I mention in particular two nurses who stood by my bedside for 48 hours when things could have gone either way. They're Jenny from New Zealand, in Vicargill on the South Island to be exact, and Luis from Portugal near Porto. And the reason in the end my body did start to get enough oxygen was because for every second of the night, 
they were watching and they were thinking and they were caring and making the interventions I needed. And so, Jim, first of all, it's great that he's feeling better. Hopefully there's uh, no relapse here. And uh, secondly, we really need Boris Johnson. He's an interesting character. And right now he's kind of the guy you really want in charge. Yeah, uh, I was going to say when Boris Johnson became the prime minister, uh, I would characterize myself as, as, you know, reasonably optimistic. I had followed him as a writer uh, for a while. I always liked the idea that journalists could be good at other things besides journalism. Um, but also just he was a... Um, he was not just a, a conservative leader in the, you know, capital C identity of the party, but a conservative leader in many other ways. Uh, and also a, uh, you know, not only a supporter of Brexit, but also um, he, he occasionally, you know, he, he idolizes Churchill and he clearly desires to be a speaker and writer and communicator on the level of Churchill. Now, maybe nobody's ever going to uh, you know, rival, arguably, what I think was, was it, uh, I think Weekly Standard called Winston Churchill the man of the century, um, the most consequential figure of that entire time period, certainly one of the greatest leaders in world history. And I don't know if history will look back on Boris Johnson this way, there's a lot of road ahead, but um, I think his remarks yesterday were remarkably eloquent, remarkably personal. Rarely do you see a leader of a country sound so human. He, he really is awed and touched by uh, the doctors and nurses who helped save them. And I thought it was very special that he, he thought, you know, he, he thanked them by name. Um, those of us on the right may not love the remarks he made about the National Health Service uh, and, and, you know, the way Britain decides to organize its healthcare industry. But um, at this moment, there was something Churchillian in the galvanizing tone he tried to uh, bring to the audiences. And so it was really quite moving. It's not something, you know, we've seen a lot of leaders give a lot of speeches, but I think that uh, um, you want to talk about, you know, Boris Johnson really, you know, his words could really touch people because he's been there. We know that he genuinely, you know, was somebody who, you know, as soon as the report came in that he was on oxygen, I was kind of mentally and emotionally preparing myself for the possibility that the, you know, UK might not have the prime minister who took office not that long ago. So uh, appears he's on the mend. He certainly looked good in that video. And, uh, you know, so hopefully better days are ahead for both him and the UK. And it just was a, you know, again, if you haven't taken the time, go out and listen. It's only about eight minutes or so. Uh, listen to his remarks because I think they're, they're just something extraordinary and we just don't see uh, in our national lives all that often anymore. The personal mentioning of all the nurses and the two in particular, I thought was uh, particularly powerful. And uh, I, I was impressed with uh, how well he delivered the speech. I mean, this is a respiratory issue and it didn't seem like he was struggling at all. I'm sure it might have been edited in places, but uh, it really didn't seem like he was laboring much. And that's obviously encouraging as well. All right, Jim, let's move on to our bad martini now here. And we've uh, kind of dabbled in this topic, but uh, as this uh, lockdown goes on in various places around the country due to coronavirus, it really is getting kind of insane in some places. And specifically, Michigan, where I'm from, by the way, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor there, who's clearly auditioning to be the running mate for Joe Biden. In fact, she uh, had a glamour shot done of her, and because, you know, that's essential work, and a profile done of her because she clearly wants this uh, job on the ticket. But uh, she has now locked things down even farther in Michigan to the point where you cannot go from one residence to the other, even if you own the residence. And this is kind of an issue because a lot of folks have cabins up in the northern part of the state and they don't want a lot of people headed up there because the healthcare systems up there can't handle a lot more people if, if anything breaks out there. 
But at the same time, you're not even allowed, supposedly allowed to go visit uh, other people's houses, maybe even drop things off on their porch. I don't know how strictly they're going to enforce that. But uh, it, it's clearly getting under people's skin in Michigan. Uh, she's also decided that you can't buy non-essential items even in stores that are open. So literally sections of stores that are open where you could normally buy things, certain things you can't buy. You can't buy baby car seats because why would you ever need that? Uh, you can't buy seeds or things that you would plant into the ground for gardening or flowers. My favorite part though, Jim, is that you can still buy lottery tickets. So, uh, well, we, we need that state revenue. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. In reference to some other states, uh, Bill Barr and the Justice Department saying they're going to be looking into the way uh, some local jurisdictions and state police were uh, cracking down on folks going to drive-in services for Easter and so forth. So uh, what do you make of the tightening of the screws here? Uh, are we seeing wannabe autocrats on parade or something else? No, no, I think you're, you're accurate there. Uh, my colleague, Andy McCarthy, had a very good piece about this. And the Today's Wall Street Journal editorial uh, also has another one. For, again, looking at several prominent examples, but obviously I think Whitmer deserves particular attention in this, in part because uh, she has somehow catapulted to apparently the top tier of potential running mates for Joe Biden because she is the governor of a uh, major state. She's a woman. Uh, she's a fresh face, et cetera, et cetera. But look, let's face it, some of her decisions on this have been terrible. And you have a sneaking suspicion that her national reputation is being driven in part by fighting with President Trump and not by actual her record in governing. Look, you know, I'm going to read a little bit from the Wall Street Journal editorial. Michigan state officials have also imposed a series of heavy-handed restrictions, including bans on supposedly non-essential sections of supermarkets, which can have accordingly been cordoned off. Like, it's not just like, we can't sell you that. We're, we're going to put, like, it's like, I'm surprised they haven't put police tape, right? Or, or some sort of, you know, they're, uh, uh, an iron curtain is descending down your Walmart at this rate. <laughs> Um, under Governor Whitmer's order, a Michigander can buy a bag of candy or a lottery ticket, but not a pack of seeds or a can of paint. First of all, are any of these folks dealing with kids at home? These kids need paint. These kids need things to do, right? You know, uh, Michiganders can enjoy a boat ride by themselves or with their dogs, but not if the boat has a motor. Well, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board says, the logic of these seemingly arbitrary distinctions must elude most Americans. Look, as I said, kind of summarize a very good piece by Andy yesterday. The moment people think this stuff is petty or, or people with Napoleon complexes, you know, trying to throw their weight around and acting like, you know, Eric Cartman, respect my authority, uh, <laughs> people are going to start saying this is all nonsense. Clearly, the, clearly, this isn't really for a health reason. This is just them being on a power trip. Screw you. I'm going to do what I want to do. And people will stop paying attention to any of this quarantine stuff. I would really like to see, in addition to folks like you and me and Andy McCarthy and the Wall Street Journal editorial board and other folks at National Review, I would like to see the Anthony Fauci's of the world come out and say, you know, this is going too far. This is not going to be helpful because the Anthony Fauci's of the world need people paying attention to the real quarantine rules, the ones that make more sense. We don't need them fetching. And I'm going to pick a particular moment to yell at the woman who yelled at myself and my wife for walking right next to each other on a path near our home. Listen, Karen, I, I, want, I know you got a, degree, a medical degree from the University of Wikipedia, but it turns <laughs> out that video, that, that CGI that people have been running around saying, oh my goodness, when you jog, you're exhaling all of this oxygen. It's by somebody who has no medical background whatsoever, right? This is really good on the computer graphics, not good on the actual medical knowledge, right? So, I mean, this has unleashed everybody's inner busybody. And the more you see this, like the guy being yanked off the bus in Philadelphia, right. um, all these other cases, the more people are going to say, this is nonsense, in other words, and they're going to say, to hell, you know, to hell with this, I'm going to do what I want. America has spent roughly a month in self-quarantine, you know, apparently 80% of the uh, uh, counties in the country right now. 
this is all largely being done voluntary. All of the enforcement of our laws is largely done with the, the uh, consent of the governed, right? If a million people decide to break the law simultaneously, there aren't enough cops in any city to, to, to deal with that. This is why everybody's got to be on their best behavior. And there are occasional signs of, uh, of improvement. Um, when Louisville, Kentucky Mayor Greg Fisher tried to prohibit the drive-through services, uh, federal judge Justin Walker said, you know, what the heck are you talking about? This makes absolutely no sense. This doesn't make epidemiologic sense. This doesn't make constitutional sense. No, you can't do this. Thank you, <laughs> Judge Walker. And I'm really, again, I need, we need good people in government to start stepping on these, uh, these penny-ante dictators who want to take over people's lives and stuff like that. If you're a cop, you should not be putting people in handcuffs because they're violating social distancing laws, in part because you can't put handcuffs on people without <laughs> getting within six feet of them. So do you think it's just going to be mass civil disobedience if, uh, if this continues, or do you think it'll be more of a lawsuit thing? Well, I mean, lawsuits are already uh, flying around, Greg, but my sneaking suspicion is, is that mass civil disobedience, I think, is, look, people are going to start ignoring the quarantine rules when good weather comes, whether this happens or not. The extent of the disobedience is going to be, you know, like this, this you know, we, we've already seen the kids on the beach in Florida, stuff like that. When weather gets really nice, people aren't going to stay, aren't going to stay indoors. It's just a you know, part of the human condition. It's baked in the cake. So the question is, how bad does it get? And the more irresponsible government officials get, the more widespread everybody's going to say, this is like security theater at the TSA. This is, like, this is all stuff that's designed to make us look safe. It doesn't actually keep us safe, and they'll start ignoring it. And that's when you'll really start having spreading, additional spread of the disease. You mentioned uh, the dust-up that Whitmer and Trump got into because Trump called her that woman from Michigan instead of Governor Whitmer or, or whatever else he could have called her. And so then she did an interview with a T-shirt that said that woman from Michigan. Mm. Jim, I don't know about you, but didn't that smack to you of that mayor in Puerto Rico who ended up doing more TV interviews than actually helping people after the hurricane? Yeah. And you know, one of the things like, look, if you're in an absolute crisis, DEFCON 1, red alert on the enterprise emergency Who's got time to go off and print up a special T-shirt? Is that essential? Did you come within? Did somebody throw it at you from a distance of more than six feet away? All right. Well, let's talk about uh, our crazy martini now. And for that, we go to the August pages of the New York Times, bearing this story on Easter Sunday, no less. But uh, the way they tweeted this out and the way they even phrased it in the story itself made it quite clear that this was not just going to get ignored and uh, have everybody move on from it. Uh, I don't think we've even talked about this underlying story, Jim, but there's this uh, former Biden staffer from way back in the early to mid-90s named Tara Reid, who uh, has alleged that he sexually assaulted her. And uh, the New York Times has looked into this, and uh, here's a, a bit of their Twitter thread from yesterday. Tara Reid, a former Senate aide who last year accused Joe Biden of inappropriate touching, has made an allegation of sexual assault against the former vice president. A spokeswoman for Biden said the allegation was false. Soon after Tara Reid made the allegation in a podcast interview released on March 25th, the New York Times began reporting on her account and seeking corroboration through interviews, documents, and other sources. A friend said Tara Reid told her the details of the allegation at the time, and another friend and a brother of Reid said she told them over the years about a traumatic sexual incident involving Biden. Here comes the magical tweet, though. No other allegation about sexual assault surfaced in the course of our reporting, nor did any former Biden staff corroborate Reid's allegation. We found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. Well, that tweet got ratioed to oblivion, and then the New York Times deleted it and came back with a cryptic tweet that said, we've deleted a tweet in this thread that had some imprecise language 
that has been changed in the story. And the way they changed it was they just made it, we found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden. They left out the hugs, kisses, and touching that other women said made them uncomfortable. And Jim, uh, a lot of folks have been pointing out on Twitter that apparently Reid didn't specifically name Biden in her recent criminal complaint. And there's some other issues related to this allegation that makes some folks wonder if it's, if it's on the up and up. But uh, for the New York Times and so many others who went to uh, war against Brett Kavanaugh on far less information, uh, this is quite the, uh, the cover up here. Yeah, it's spectacularly different. And, and right before we started taping, you mentioned that as soon as you saw the tweet, you took a screenshot. Because we all kind of know how this, op- how this works now. If CNN's you know, reporter and initial headline writer writes something that says along the lines of Senate Democrats block relief bill, grab it, <laughs> take a picture of that screen, because you know it's not going to last very long. At some point, CNN's going to say, oh, wait a minute. That headline could get people to think badly of the Democratic Party. We can't let that happen. And then there's a partisan divide blocks, you know, all, all this random partisan divide that just, you know, it's terrible how, how you know, this, the, I'm picturing some like alien creature, the partisan divide came out of nowhere. And in this case with Biden, look, for a long time, people were pointing out all the different articles that had mentioned this, that, the other thing, they were much more uh, supportive to the left of center agenda or narrative or something like that. And the New York Times had not mentioned Ms. Reid in any way, shape or form. My assumption is at some point this started grading on the New York Times and they decided to take a look at it. Now, obviously, releasing a news story on Easter Sunday morning is not the apex of news readership. Um, in fact, you know, generally, you know, ho- news holidays are the least read days of the year for a newspaper, uh, which back in my wire service days meant that was the days I could get almost any article into the paper that day because they just needed to, you know, one, they needed it because the regular staff didn't want to work those days. And just there was a gaping hole in the news pages. That's where they like, all right, stick something in there. It's not like anybody's going to be reading this stuff anyway. <laughs> that was, this, this was the high standards of my early journalism career. <laughs> he takes up space, ladies and gentlemen. But in this case, I, there, so there, there, there are genuine questions to be a little uh, skeptical of Ms. Reed's account of things. I do think you can make the argument that there is a difference between Biden's weird hands on shoulders and nose behind the neck, hair smell. Like, look, this is weird. This is creepy. This makes some women uncomfortable. I think it's, you can say that this is qualitatively different than a full-on sexual assault. Um, But the wording of the New York Times tweet really does sound like, other than the interruption, Mrs. Lincoln said she enjoyed the play. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and one of the arguments that came forth through Me Too was this kind of, the argument of like, look, perhaps not everyone was involved in uh, you know, perhaps not every sexual predator is, behaves in a manner of uh, violent assaults and throwing somebody down and, and, you know, forcibly taking someone. But that doesn't mean that the hands on the shoulders or touchy-feeliness or, or unwanted uh, kisses or other forms of touching are, are you know, uh, no big deal. Uh, we have an ability to make these kind of distinctions. The, the, we've all seen Biden's behavior in one category. This doesn't automatically mean that he did the other you know, things he's accused of. On the other hand, I don't think you can necessarily cite that as exculpatory evidence. The argument of, oh, come now. We all know that Joe Biden only enjoys smelling women's hair. You know, that doesn't uh, seem like a terribly, terribly persuasive argument either. Um, but everything, every single decision that the New York Times made in this screamed of an effort to check the box, to get everyone off their case, to say that they evaluated it and they came to the conclusion that there's nothing, there's nothing there worth further investigation. It's not even that they dismissed it. Uh, that, that's problematic in and of itself. But they're so inconsistent about how they apply it. Uh, I mean, this allegation, whether it's accurate or not, has a lot more detail and actually has contemporary mm-hmm. accounts 
but they went wall to wall with Kavanaugh, who had an accuser who couldn't even remember what year it happened. I was going to say, you know, the, the contrast with Ford and how many people who said they chose to believe her despite uh, the witnesses who contradicted her, despite the lack of a specific location, despite the lack of a specific date. Uh, I mean, eventually they were kind of narrow it down to a couple month window. Most people said, well, I choose to believe her. Uh, perhaps one of them, the example that sticks most in my mind is Caitlin Flanagan and otherwise excellent writer for The Atlantic, but who describes some traumatic event in her past and said, well, because this happened to me, I choose to believe her. Well, the fact that that happened to Caitlin Flanagan does not necessarily mean that what happened to Christine Blasey Ford happened or that she's remembering it accurately, et cetera, et cetera. It was this, you know, this, this interesting standard of just because I have a corner post that's, that's on, on this particular angle. So if you believe that you know, one case of an assault happened, then you have to believe other cases of assault. Um, does this mean that if one lab accident happened, you have to believe other accusations of lab accidents? Sorry, that's just been <laughs> on my mind lately. A lot of creepy, freaking out lab accidents have happened over the years. But no, no, couldn't have happened in this one. No, no, the Wuhan labs are just too professional. They're just too well-trained. It just doesn't happen, or at least that some folks are telling me. Sorry, that's, that's where my mind is these days, Greg. Yeah, it's... it's... <laughs> It's just amazing to watch uh, the difference here. And, and I don't know if it's just uh, Republican versus Democrat. I think that's probably part of it. Or whether we're seeing the fact that uh, any allegation against Joe Biden because of the desire to take down Donald Trump this year in the presidential election means that they're going to be deflecting and, and carrying water even more than usual. But I, Yeah, I mean, you know, if Sanders was, Bernie Sanders was the nominee, would this be getting this treatment in the, in the New York Times? Probably not. Or would but, it just be ignored uh, entirely because Joe Biden would be considered irrelevant? Would the folks on the right who are saying we should listen to Ms. Reid be paying as much attention if Biden was not the nomination? So anyway, that's, uh, again, motivated reasoning is a hell of a drug. Well, on that fun note, uh, we're glad we're off to another good start this week. Uh, let's hope we've got plenty of good news as the week unfolds. Jim, we'll talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. And don't forget that you can get us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. Stay safe in the storms. And we'll see you on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.